This is David Nage with my co-host Amanda Frankel. This is Baselayer, where institutional investors learn about crypto. This is David. Welcome back to Baselayer. Amanda has lost her voice, so you're going to hear from me this morning, but I'm going to keep this short and sweet. Today's show, we have Ariana Simpson with us, which to us was just such an amazing time to spend uh, Ariana is someone that we highly regard as an investor, as someone who has provided a lot of thought into this ecosystem. Uh, she's very well read on Twitter and social and other forms. Uh, if you don't know her, you should know her. Um, also, we talked about the notion, the narrative of a better Bitcoin and how that's really not necessarily true. But however, we do talk about crypto infrastructure which Ariana for the last year, year and a half has been investing in while everyone else was getting caught up in the sexy dApps and other things that were being built. She was talking about the pipes, if you will. And I remember when I met her about a year and a half ago, she was talking about that very specific theme and I kind of dismissed it at the time. But then a few months later, I realized how much of a genius she was and how forward thinking she is. We talked about the religion of crypto, again, air quote that, and how some people on the camps get very fervently behind their specific project. We talk about her love of math and how it works into valuation, how she's thinking about uh, valuing future networks. That's a TBD. We talk about a lot of things, and it's a really amazing conversation that encompasses a lot of different areas within the crypto uh, sphere. And we also talk about things that drives her in terms of what she's reading, in terms of what she's listening to. I love the fact that she is a big electronic and house music fan. Uh, as many people know, uh, in personal life, that has been a big part of my life for about two decades now. It's a great conversation. Uh, it's, someone, it's someone that we, re- we respect a lot and someone that we uh, really were very lucky to have on the show today. Enjoy it. And we'll be back at you. Uh, remember, again, nothing on base layer is investment advice. Please do your own research. And also on the flip side, you'll hear from our sponsor. And then after that, you'll hear from the interview with Ariana Simpson. Enjoy. The Block is a leading news and information source in the cryptocurrency and blockchain space. The team of experts provides deep, objective research, analysis, and journalism on a daily basis via its website and newsletter. Check out The Block at theblockcrypto.com. This is David. And this is Amanda. And this is Baselayer. We have an amazing show today. Our good friend Ariana Simpson is joining us today. Ariana, how are you? Hi, I'm great. Thanks for having me. So about a year ago, maybe about a year and a half ago, I had the pleasure of meeting Ariana Simpson in New York at a blockchain, I think it was a BTC uh, event or some sort of a party at a bar downtown that Mike Dudas invited me from the block. And I show up, I don't really know anybody, and there's Ariana Simpson 
coming right to me and starting to chat me up and we start talking about crypto infrastructure and I'm like, who is this person and what are we talking about? Why aren't we talking about like Bitcoin and dApps and all this other cool stuff that everyone's talking about? And here she is talking about crypto infrastructure. I'm like, whoa. Now, you know, fast forward a year ago, I'm like, wow, you know, you were just a trailblazer. You were talking about things that a lot of people were almost ignoring. And so it is so fun to have you on. You're a good friend someone that we definitely are very supportive of. So if you could, for the listeners, uh, give them a little bit of a background about you. And what we try to do is not necessarily, we don't want to hear that inflection point kind of when you got into Bitcoin, whether it's 2011, 2012, but more importantly, why you decided to dedicate your professional career to crypto. So with that, if you can give us a little bit of a background. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I got into the space uh, primarily following a trip that I took to Southern Africa. So I spent time in Zimbabwe, uh, and this is about five and a half years ago at this point. Um, but I was there basically just traveling around and uh, spent some time in Zimbabwe, basically right after the worst of their hyperinflation. And so when I was there, I really got to see kind of the economic devastation that the country had gone through and the reality of what hyperinflation and its aftermath uh, means for people. And so um, I think that was really what kind of made Bitcoin back in the day click in my head. Once I got back, I started thinking a lot about monetary policy. Uh, and after a friend of mine recommended uh, that I read the Bitcoin white paper, everything just kind of gelled for me. So as I mentioned before, you were very early in discussing and talking and investing in crypto infrastructure. So aside from um, kind of everything else, we want to hear more about the fund and exactly what you're doing there. But as this the show is called Base Layer, and we've been talking a lot about crypt, crypto infrastructure, what is crypto infrastructure to you? And what is needed to help scale protocols? And where are we currently right now in the stage of the build out of crypto infrastructure? Yeah. So I think infrastructure is, is super important and it's something that isn't generally considered super sexy, but I think it's very interesting because I'm a little bit strange. Um, but no, I mean, I've been thinking about infrastructure as it pertains to crypto literally since day one of my crypto interest. And the main reason behind that is uh, when I came back and started telling everyone that Bitcoin was going to revolutionize the world, um, I think a, a lot of the pushback I got, you know, when I was talking with folks who um, you know, maybe weren't as familiar with the technology or what it could do, uh, came around actual adoption. And so people were saying, oh, okay, so you can use this for remittances. But in reality, like, how are people going to get money out on the other side? And, you know, kind of all of these different facets of infrastructure, which at the time were completely lacking. Um, now, a lot of that has, has been built out, at least in kind of its V1 form. Um, but so for me, generally speaking, infrastructure is anything that um, basically allows uh, cryptocurrency to, or any technology really, to uh, advance to the next layer and is basically a prerequisite for um, larger adoption. Now, that seems pretty broad, but I think within crypto, we can kind of break it down into a couple of different major categories. Um, some of it is obviously more, uh, you know, technology base layer uh, type stuff uh, to reference the name of the podcast. So those are layer one um, blockchains, which, you know, perhaps uh, ideally have better scalability and, and um, 
things like that built in from day one. Uh, in some cases, infrastructure can be something that's more kind of one layer above. So layer two solutions to scalability, privacy, uh, and other issues. Um, and then I think the the other category is really infrastructure as it pertains to how people interact with um, with the products. And so, you know, in that case, we're talking more about perhaps financial infrastructure. So where institutions are going to come in and trade um, and kind of all the fundamental building blocks that entities like that will require before they can really enter the space. By the way, we're really going to have to trademark that because <laughs> a lot of the guests have been using that that phrase base layer. So it was either a genius stroke on our part to call it base layer. <laughs> um, well, thank you for using that. Um, so in addition to you know the conversation about infrastructure, um, one of the the notes out there late last year was from Nick Grossman at USV. They published a blog post called The Myth of the Infrastructure Phase. And to cite that, it says that our hypothesis is that it is not actually how things play out. We are not in an infrastructure phase, but rather in another turn of the app's infrastructure cycle. And in fact, the history of new technology shows that app begets infrastructure, not the other way around. It's not that the first we build all the infrastructure and once we have the infrastructure we need, we begin to build apps. It's exactly the opposite. So with that, what are your thoughts on that? So, uh, well, I think Nick makes a great point, um, which is that, you know, in many cases, if you look historically uh, at how much of technology has evolved, you start with kind of a killer application and then you transition to a platform. So, for example, in the case of Facebook, obviously you had this kind of um, website that everybody was very excited to use. And then from that, they built out uh, more of a platform model. Um, and so there's there's numerous examples of that happening uh, over the years. And so I think that's a, a great point because basically what happens in this cycle is that, you know, you have an application that stress tests the current system. So for example, in within crypto, I think the best example of that would be CryptoKitties. So around November of, of 2017, that went super viral. Uh, and that was really the first dApp that kind of put pressure on the Ethereum blockchain in terms of uh, how many transactions it could process. And so that started to really show that, oh, shoot, we really need some scalability solutions here, or this isn't going to work. Um, and so that, you know, th that type of cycle basically says, okay, now, Let's build out the infrastructure. And then once that takes a step forward, then you can have more advanced applications. But the point is, like, uh, you know, I agree with Nick because uh, you really need to have a reason why people should care. And if they don't have an application that they're excited to use, then nobody cares. And so nobody bothers building infrastructure. Um, so that, you know, I think that's what their point is. The one category that I would say is kind of a an exception um, or operates in a slightly different manner is if you're looking at, again, institutional adoption, in those cases, you're just going to need some of the infrastructure first because, uh, you know, those those entities are not going to be coming in and trading on a DAP, like, which has bad usability, no matter, no matter how exciting it is. So those sorts of entities have more specific needs and regulations that they have to adhere to. Um, but in general, yes, you need a killer app or, or really better a reason to care first. If I'm understanding it correctly, a good way to summarize what you just said is, is the similar trope that necessity is 
the mother of innovation, right? Um, and so think about the way uh, Nick Grossman talks about the fact that an app can um, generate a need for more infrastructure. Also, quite a few crypto projects that tend to get lost in the shuffle. So when a, when a crypto project comes out um, and it highlights a lack of infrastructure, it becomes ill-timed for their current market. We've seen a resurgence of project launches recently that have um, sort of a feel of this too early vibe that we got a lot in late 2016, early 2017, like um, more wallets coming out, um, more dApps coming out without particular scalability. So are, are you seeing any particular project category coming back up that's too early? Yeah, I mean, I'm seeing, I don't know if it's it's purely that it's too early. I'm seeing a proliferation of wallets. And to be honest, like, I don't really think that's the problem. Like, there's plenty of wallets. Some of them are janky. Some of them are better. But in general, the main barrier to adoption at the moment is not a lack of wallets. Um, so something like that, I think, is, is a little bit um, perhaps overplayed right now. Um, you know, other other things that seem too early are, um, again, a, a lot of the, well, to, let, let me caveat this. You know, I think there's a lot of dApps out there. Most of them are definitely too early for their time, kind of regardless of category, because they do have significant uh, UX and UI challenges still, uh, because people are kind of wary of the space right now, you know, for a number of reasons. Um, but I think in general, it's it's good to see this experimentation because eventually something's going to hit uh, in the way CryptoKitties did, and that's going to you know create a lot more interest and and kind of start the flywheel again. So you know, yes, many of them are too early, but you know, I think everything is too early until something's not, and it's really hard to say what is going to hit the market in the right way until you get it out there. And so I think that's that's why this kind of creative wave is really important just because it can generate a lot of ideas and most of them won't work out, but a couple of them probably will. I have a quick question on that. So there's been a few narratives, a few people that have come on the show recently that have talked about a negative catalyst that will really propel further people in society caring about crypto, about the utility, about blockchain. Do you also subscribe to that belief that there will be a negative catalyst effectively something a centralized authority a centralized technology piece that has a massive failure or something within our legacy financial systems something that will have a failure of sorts that will cause society to waken up to what crypto provides um to be honest no i don't i don't think that'll be the case um i think Yes, in in a few regionalized cases, we have seen where there was, you know, some sort of monetary or financial crisis, we have seen crypto adoption pick up significantly, particularly uh, as it pertains to Bitcoin specifically. But I don't think that, um, you know, the thing is, the, the entire crypto space is still very new and very experimental, and therefore very scary to some people. So moving, you have to be really, really desperate to move into something that feels very unknown and scary. Um, you know, so if you're in Venezuela, that might be interesting. If you're in Zimbabwe, you know, some of these places, yes. But in terms of, you know, somewhere like the United States or really the, the globe at large, I don't think that's gonna be the case. There's this common narrative also around, oh, well, if there's like a financial meltdown, you know, all the money's gonna flow into crypto. 
to be honest, like I'm super bullish on this space, but I think that line of thinking is nonsensical because again, what you see in historical financial crises is a flight to safety. So what is safety? It's like bonds, maybe treasuries, US dollar. So um, expecting that in any kind of, you know, short term horizon, so let's say five years or less, uh, people are going to fly into crypto because they feel um, uncertainty in, in other areas of their financial lives just doesn't make any sense to me. That could effectively, though, have a rationale for stable coins. Um, yes, sure. I think that's that's possible. Um, but again, right now, stable coins are still, you know, if I have access to dollars, which you know, many people do, obviously, in the United States, but a lot of the rest of the world has at least some degree of access to U.S. dollars. Um, that becomes more interesting than, uh, you know, a stable coin, which still has a lot more friction and a lot more kind of question marks for people who are not in the crypto space. Um, so one of the things that comes up here, again, I, I really like your focus on the narrative that you know, people's flight to safety won't beat a Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin is still for, I, I would say, almost every investor, except for a few quite loquacious ones on Twitter, a, a risk asset, right? So when you look at um, the future of crypto, there, there will be some inflection point where Bitcoin moves from a risk asset into a potential store of value or mean of exchange, depending on your thesis. Um, if it's not a big negative catalyst that creates that change, what do you think it is? Well, I don't necessarily think that there's going to be a single catalyst, right? Because if we look at, you know, how Bitcoin got here, it's funny because everyone's like, oh, it's a bear market. It's so severe. If you had told me five years ago that Bitcoin would be hanging around $3,400, $3,500 a coin, I would have been ecstatic. And I think most people wouldn't have believed it, you know, maybe me included. So, um, you know, I, I think there's, you have to kind of keep that in mind. And if I look at kind of what has brought Bitcoin to this point, I don't think it's been really any singular um, catalyst. I think there's in crypto, maybe in, in investing in general, a strong desire to create a narrative around, oh, well, this happened because of that, the price did X because of Y, when in reality, I think the market is is kind of operating on, on forces that are very hard to see and really most people, maybe all people don't understand. You, you really love math. I know that we've talked about that before. I've read that about you. Um, yes, you can find a lot about Ariana Simpson if you listen to podcasts like this and also search her on Google. Um, she is a very well-spoken person in this space. So I want to find out more about your love of math, but I think it's also a great time for us to also talk a little bit more, give you some time to talk about your fund, about why you created your fund and what you're focusing on your fund. Sure. Um, yeah. So, you know, my fund is really just kind of the the uh, result of the last number of years I've spent in the crypto space and uh, some time more broadly uh, in the venture realm that I've, I've spent. And so, you know, my approach is kind of a hybrid between a venture and a hedge fund model. Um, I think the correct bias for the space at this point in time is long. So uh, we don't short anything at present. And we are really focused on helping 
whatever we invest in, whether that's crypto networks uh, and we're investing in tokens or companies, um, you know, develop. And so uh, I don't necessarily, you know, some people will will do very well shorting things and kind of taking a more uh, skeptical lens, but that's definitely not uh, our approach. Um, so yeah, you know, like I said earlier, infrastructure has been something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about uh, over the last few years and um, still spend a lot of time on. So that's a big category for us. Um, and then another segment is is kind of uh, money. So, you know, crypto as money, obviously Bitcoin being a big, uh, a big part of that, but also uh, other forms of money, perhaps with uh, privacy centric features and things like that. And uh, money is really an interesting category and something that I think is hard for a lot of people to wrap their heads around because, you know, it's easier to say, oh, you know, this this cryptocurrency is like a decentralized Dropbox or it's like a decentralized insert, whatever. Um, but inventing a new form of money is something that happens only ever, every few thousand years. And so I think it's a lot harder for um, for people to kind of grapple with. Um, but the interesting thing about that is that, um, you know, it becomes increasingly valuable the more people have it and use it. And uh, it is by definition the largest market. So um, you know, it, it, that category in particular, I think, offers the kind of really asymmetric upside opportunities that you don't often see. So going back to my note about your love of math. So you are long, as you said, and a lot of people in crypto are really trying to develop methods of valuing crypto networks aggressively. Um, we've had Chris Berninski, we've had a number of different um, people within the community try to address this issue. So what are your opinions on valuation as it relates to your love of math? And in terms of mentioning crypto as money, how do you actually value a currency? Ah, the, the, the great question that all of us are, are trying to grapple with these days. Um, I had to ask. Yeah. I'm, I had to ask. <laughs> it's all good. I get it a lot. Um, look, I mean, the, the honest answer is I don't have an answer. Uh, I don't have a formula that I feel, you know, good enough about to, uh, to publish publicly at this point. What I will say is I think there is a lot of risk inherent to, trying too early to pin things down in a very specific form. So while I think all the research and kind of uh, testing that is being done now is really important because it's what allows us to actually advance in our understanding of how we should value these things, um, I think there's also a lot of uh, risk and potential downside attached to trying to, um, you know, be too prescriptive in our valuations at this point. And the main risk there is, you know, just because you have a formula and it seems like it makes sense doesn't actually mean that it does. And so that can often lure, you know, investors into a false sense of confidence because um, because really, you know, the formula could be completely wrong and we don't really know. The other thing I'll say is that finding good data, which is obviously critical to um successfully modeling some of these things is really difficult these days. Uh, a ton of the data that's coming off of exchanges is is uh, is falsified or includes wash trading and things like this. Um, some of the crypto networks themselves may be publishing incorrect numbers. Um, so, you know, there, there's just a lot of issues with the the inputs as well. Um, you know, the fascinating thing, which I think is is uh, hard to see in the near term, but if you're able to zoom out, is really important, is the fact that um, 
we used to not have very good formulas for valuing stocks either. So, you know, if you look right around the start of the 1900s, most investors still found it really difficult to even value shares. And so people would talk about dividend yields. So even fairly sophisticated investors would say, oh, you know, I'm buying some 5% shares. And that was going on, you know, for, for decades, right up around uh, until close to the Second World War. So, you know, it's everyone seems to think, oh, well, it's so bizarre. We don't know how to value these networks. It's like, well, that's actually not surprising, just given where we are in the development of the technology. So, you know, I think the formulas will come, the valuations will come. Um, but, you know, again, right now, I don't have any, any perfectly packaged uh, solutions for you. I think a lot of that, too, is sort of reflective of the way general economic principles are developed, right? Um, you know, when I, when I was studying macroeconomic theories in undergrad, there was always this ongoing joke that anytime you come up with a good economic model, um, it is officially outdated because a lot of what you need from a data perspective in order to try to quantify human behavior, which is the ever elusive economic concept that we're all trying to grapple with as, as a key in our equation, you know, by the time you have enough historical data in order to fully understand what's happened, it loses its predictive capacity, right? Moving on slightly from the economic piece, you know, I think that a, a lot of what we look at in valuing crypto networks isn't just you know, how do we fundamentally assess the way these things work? You know, it all comes down to, to a single comparison back to the original, back to Bitcoin, right? Like, I think that a phrase that's been tossed around a lot recently, and I think I saw you um, mention on Twitter, is that there is no better Bitcoin. than. Um, so if you could kind of elaborate on this, you know, in the context of trying to value other crypto networks, but also in what makes Bitcoin, you know, something that potentially won't be abstracted away as we develop other crypto assets. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, my comment there was really just that, you know, if I had a Bitcoin for every time I've seen someone saying, oh, it's a better Bitcoin, you know, <laughs> I'd be long retired. Um, I think, look, Bitcoin in some ways is is a pretty incredible invention. Uh, and frankly, you know, I don't think we need to develop a better one at the moment. I think time would be better spent focusing on something, solving some of the other real challenges that the space has. So, you know, looking at scalability, looking at privacy, how, how do we, you know, insert some of these functionalities into existing networks and trying to invent a better Bitcoin is, is really difficult because so much of Bitcoin's like power comes from effectively its brand value. And that brand value is built over time, generally, you know, started by a really fervent community. And um, a very smart friend of mine actually did a fascinating study of uh, the early history of Catholicism and all the various schisms that occurred and kind of the, the sects that uh, broke off from the main branches and how they created all of these religious elements um, that kind of suited their communities. And so it's pretty interesting because obviously, you know, people don't typically think of uh, cryptocurrency is something that is kind of religiously driven. But actually, I think there's quite a lot of similarities in terms of the the fervent community that it has. So, you know, unless you're able to somehow jumpstart that element, um, I don't think the technology alone is going to really solve that problem at the moment. So, you know, I, I don't think we need a better Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin does its job perfectly well for now. Um, and, you know, the, the issues that it has, scalability, things like that uh, are being worked on. You know, some of them are, are being solved at the second layer. Some of them are being, um, you know, uh, uh, kind of built out on other chains and then hopefully will be integrated into Bitcoin. But 
frankly, I think Bitcoin does a pretty great job at, at what it does. And I think the slowness uh, with which the core developers, you know, put anything new into the protocol is actually a great thing because they're optimizing for security rather than, uh, you know, experimentation. And so, um, you know, I think that's actually a very desirable characteristic in a chain that is holding so much value. Let's talk a little bit about innovation in both Bitcoin and Ethereum going a little off script, but I think you're definitely someone who's capable of handling something like this. So in conversations we've had past, Bitcoin is what we would define as a digital gold or is a crypto money. And Ethereum is a platform where you can effectively use smart contracts to build other platforms and application. And so effectively, you know, I'd like to get your sense about the innovation both happening within Bitcoin and both in Ethereum. Ethereum has had some recent news about Constantinople, about the integration of zero uh, zero knowledge proofs, ZK snarks, and then Bitcoin um, has been effectively uh, been, there's been some conversation about implementation uh, or bolstering script and using RSK and Ivy and some other things. What is your opinion on the innovation happening within Bitcoin and Ethereum? So I think the biggest issue for uh, Ethereum is is really scalability. So while I think a privacy layer would be a great addition, um, I think that's definitely less of a P1 if I were, you know, if I were deciding what needs to be solved. Um, you know, I, I don't believe that we'll see, and this is kind of true of, of kind of a general comment on both Bitcoin and Ethereum. I don't think we will see, and I don't think it's actually desirable to have a single cryptocurrency that has everything baked into it. Like there is a reason why we have different apps that perform different functions on our iPhones. Uh, you know, if once you start to roll everything in together, you really start to lose a lot of the benefits of any one thing. And so you turn into something that is mediocre at everything and great at nothing. Um, so frankly, you know, people say, oh, well, you know, Ethereum could be money, it could be a platform, it could have privacy, it could, it could have all these things, you end up with this, like, kind of Frankenstein Swiss army knife that really doesn't do anything particularly well. Um, so, you know, I, I hope that's not the direction we're going, but I think that's definitely a risk. Um, so, you know, if, if I were in charge of this, I would really focus on solving problems, you know, in, in a little bit of a sequential order, um, scalability first, and then start thinking about other things. Um, now, that's not to say that I don't think research should be carried on, on on a number of different areas, particularly because in many cases, some of the research can be um, ported to different chains. And so it's still valuable. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think we'll have, you know, a, a, a chain that includes everything. I think we'll have some that are optimized for some use cases. So for example, um, you know, I've historically been a very not uh, fan of, uh, you know, EOS, but they seem to be getting kind of a considerable leg up on some of the gambling use cases. Because at the end of the day, like that might actually be a faster blockchain, which is, you know, fundamentally more centralized, might be a better fit for something like that. Um, but, you know, we're on a chain where you're storing so much value, like in the case of Bitcoin, then obviously you want to be more focused on security. So, um, yeah, you know, I think I think the development is is proceeding um, 
is proceeding. We, we, let's put it this way. We'd always like to see it happen faster. But if you think, if you compare the speed at which innovation is happening in crypto networks relative to how it is done historically in, you know, say, cryptography in academia, um, we are actually proceeding at a breakneck pace. So, you know, to me, that's pretty exciting. I want to hone in on this idea that you mentioned that in, you know, future networks, we wouldn't expect to sort of have one chain to rule them all, but there are different ones with different functions. Um, You don't necessarily have to specifically name projects, but when you think of future optimizations for things, you know, of course, Bitcoin is the thing that's paramount, as you mentioned, is security. Um, Ethereum will have to optimize for scalability. What other pieces of the ecosystem do you see as a strong optimization point? If you want to talk about specific projects, you can. Yeah, I mean... You know, the, those are some examples, like I said, EOS for like maybe gambling or gaming use cases. I think, you know, you just start to break off into these categories where in some cases security is more important. In other cases, speed is more important. And, you know, so all of these different um, kind of priorities should result in a chain that's constructed to kind of enable the best functionality for users. Because at the end of the day, this all comes back to users, right? Users, frankly, don't give a shit whether, you know, they're on one chain or another chain for the most part. Obviously, there is a small kind of crypto native or like very strongly tech focused community that does care, but they are definitely the minority. So once you start talking about any kind of broader or mainstream adoption, like you have to think about what is the end functionality. Um, And so I think you have to design with that in mind. And frankly, you know, the the chains should be designed uh, in order to best suit what is trying to be accomplished rather than saying, oh, we have all these cool features, like let's glom them all together. Like, I think that's the wrong design approach. And that's how you end up with, you know, infrastructure that's nobody using, that nobody's using, for example, or things like that. So we have had, what is it now, 12 months, 18 months of crypto winter. if you listen to Vinny Lingham, it's a it's a nuclear winter. Is that, I think that's what he called it on crypto Twitter. <laughs> um, and you are incredibly well read. Um, you know, I, I've seen you read. I, I obviously there are apps. I think you're using Highlighter app, which thank you for introducing. Everyone who's listening, by the way, should use Highlighter app. It is an amazing app. Um, and one of the people that I know you read a lot is Howard Marks, and I've tried to delve into Howard Marks and the notion of kind of second level thinking, whereas everyone's kind of jumping into the pool and you kind of take a look at it and you say, maybe that's not where I want to go. So as we're in this crypto winter, you know, what are you thinking about in terms of second level thinking that others might be missing out right now? Well, I think the overwhelming perspective is really bearish at the moment. Um, And I really don't think that's the right lens to take. I mean, first of all, if you're just looking at the price, it's like, okay, maybe. But if you actually go into the community and look at what is being built and developed, uh, it's one of the most exciting times I've ever been seen in the space, because it's no longer such a small community that you're like, oh, I don't know if this is going to make it. I mean, There is real work that's being done on the technology side, on the business model innovation side. I mean, there's just a lot of exciting activity. And so I think people just get stuck and saying, oh, the price is down, you know, 70, 80, 90% from the all-time high. And it's like, well, yes, that's true. But A, you have to kind of step back and look at what is the long-term trajectory. And B, you know, in the broader context, optimists 
almost always win. Like if you look at, you know, the, the history of finance technology, it really favors the optimists. And so, you know, I think the general perspective is bearish, um, whereas mine is actually, you know, that that's not the correct lens. Um, and, you know, to be clear, sure, it might, you know, the outlook might be bearish for the next month, two, three, whatever. But if you think in, in kind of years or decades, which is what I tried to do, um, what is happening today is not that important. It's really more what's happening on the development side today um, and where are things headed. And so I think, you know, people get sucked into this, oh, you know, the mood is so dark because, uh, you know, the price is down. When in reality, what is a much better leading indicator is who is working in the space and what are they building? Um, and, you know, yeah, there's always going to be a time lag between when people start building some of these things and when you see that reflected in the price and things like that. But in general, you know, I, I think it's a super exciting time. That actually reminds me specifically of an article that was written. Um, it was actually by a Forbes contributor, Leslie Ankney. Just want to give her a shout out for um, writing a couple of really interesting quality pieces. But what she's focused on a lot recently is, is a similar narrative to what you've discussed, which is that despite you know th these these price indications that the market is bad that there's actually a lot of new entrants into the space and and her kind of indicator is the influx of high quality talent i think she highlighted a few people from um, facebook and google and other large enterprises that you know are moving from these lucrative corporate jobs into the blockchain and crypto space which um for, for me personally is, is always a good indicator but i also left banking to come here so i guess i'm a bit biased but um <laughs> so when you're looking at things like when you're looking at things you know other than price you're looking at influx of talent what other measures um do you use um you know there's people who have been in the space for a long time who are building but how do you balance kind of analyzing i guess the the longevity of the existing community versus how it's growing in a bear market i don't have an answer this is something i think about all the time Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, I think um, Fred Wilson had a great post about this and kind of what bear markets look like. And uh, one of the things he pointed out was that in markets like these, you really want to look for, you know, signs of life. So what seems to be growing or at least coalescing a small but pretty active community, even when the overall sentiment is not great? Um, I think one really interesting example of that right now is MakerDAO. Um, so, you know, they are um, they've grown over 10x in terms of the amount of collateral that they are holding in uh, CDPs over the past year. Um, so that's a project that is getting actual meaningful usage. Um, they've, I think they've originated something on the order of 200 million in loans. And if you look at a centralized uh, company like Lending Club, and shout out to Chris Berninski for a very interesting uh, tweet thread pointing this out, but if you look at that example, um, you know, it took them about five years to get to that marker. So that would be, for example, to, to me, an interesting case of something that is growing even when the overall sentiment isn't great. Um, and so, yeah, you know, my, my approach is just looking for pockets of kind of interesting activity like that, uh, even if the overall sentiment might not be euphoric. But to your earlier point about talent, you know, I think I think that's actually very uh, reassuring and obviously something that I uh, put a lot of value on as well in the sense that when we have a year that's as crazy as 2017, I think that generates a lot of interest and it causes some people to jump ship and come into the space, which is great. 
But uh, I think a lot of the more seasoned executives uh, in the Valley who have seen these kind of hype cycles and, and just kind of technology waves in the past are a little bit more slow to jump and tend to maybe take a little bit of a longer time. But once they do, obviously come in with great conviction. And so I think that's what we're seeing now. Um, you know, people have been watching this space for a number of years in many cases and are just now getting to the point where they say, okay, we're going to move into the space and, and really give it a go. Uh, but I think, yeah, that's a, that's a great signal for the long-term prospects of the space. So we could have this conversation for hours because you're just a cornucopia of thought and, and knowledge and we'll have you on again if you have time, obviously in the next few months. One of the things we like to do these days is also get to know our guests on a little bit more of a personal level to figure out what makes them tick. Um, we we often ask about what books they're reading, and I'm sure you can have a whole library of things that you're reading right now. Um, but what I want to find out, um, I think Amanda will ask you about what you're reading, but what I want to find out is I also know about you from a mu music standpoint, that you love music. Um, so I'd like to know, and um, maybe the listeners also, in terms of how music is you know, affecting how you think and how you use music, what are, you know, if you can name a favorite band and why, or what you're listening to right now and why, that would be amazing. So we can get an under understanding of kind of what's in, you know, in your ears, what's in your brain, what's you know, in your visual context of how you're thinking about, you know, what the world is right now and, and as it relates to crypto and blockchain. Sure. Um, yeah. So I'm a I'm a big fan of kind of house and deep house music. So I listen to a lot of that. Uh, so it tends to be pretty long sets, which I actually think are great for doing focused work because they're not um, they're not you know interrupting and oftentimes there's no words, which is also helpful. I find for focus. And who's um, your favorite so yeah. DJ? Mm, um, <laughs> picking one is hard. Um, you should all listen to David's music, which is actually awesome. Uh, but aside from that, I think uh, I really like Mira. Um, and I also love Bob Moses. Good choice. Really good choice. You know, one thing I, I do want to talk about books, but I don't want to talk about um, the type of books we normally discuss. So I, I think that the, the consensus is that people who spend a lot of time in crypto are well read. But putting aside, you know, economic treatises, um, and historical studies on the, on money, like what kind of books do you like to read outside of the economic realm? Like what's your favorite book that you've read? I, I know you set a goal for yourself to read a hundred books in 2019, which I mean, I don't know when you sleep if you're reading a hundred books on top of working <laughs> in crypto, but if you had to pick a non-crypto, non-financial book that you really, I don't know, in, in the last six months or year, what would you say that book is? Um, it's super dark, but it's really beautiful and really well written. Um, it's called A Little Life. It's a 720 page tome um, with just exceptional character development. And um, I think just a really good story. So that would probably be my fiction pick. Um, yeah, you know, I, I stopped reading fiction for many years because I felt like it was a waste of time. Um, and then, but I always loved it. And I think, uh, recently I've seen a number of studies that actually point out a lot of the benefits that it can have for, you know, understanding people better, um, creating more empathy and, you know, entering other people's psychology in a way that's very difficult to do if you're not reading fiction. Um, and so that has kind of <laughs> given me, I guess, free license to go back to doing some of that. 
Uh, I still primarily read nonfiction, but occasionally I, I slip a fiction book in there and it's great. Well, that is Ariana Simpson, and we will definitely have you back on because um, you, again, as I said, are just full of very interesting information and tidbits and observations, which are really critical. Um, for the listeners, if there if there's a way to find out more about you, um, aside from listening to this podcast, is there any place that you would like them to go? Um, probably my Twitter, at uh, Ariana Simpson. There you go. Well, this was Ariana Simpson. Thank you for joining us today on Base Layer. We'll be seeing you soon. Take Base care, Ariana. Thanks, Ariana. Thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye.